recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christiania Internet Radio. Today is Friday, March 6th, 2015. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Tonight we're going to begin our second installment of Paul's second epistle to the Corinthians. It is subtitled, Comfort and Mercy. In the opening chapter of his second epistle to the Corinthians, on several occasions, Paul had referred to encouragement or comfort, as the word may alternately be rendered. He also spoke about affliction. Ostensibly, the encouragement was being referred to because of the affliction which he had described. And he told his readers that just as you are partners of the sufferings in that manner, also of the encouragement, the affliction of the saints. As we had seen from the prophet of Isaiah, the word of Yahweh had mentioned several times that the children of Israel were to be afflicted for their apostasy from Yahweh their God. And then, at some point in the future, they were to be comforted for their affliction. That comfort was to be manifest in the message of the gospel of Christ. That is the comfort of the children of Israel. Paul's ministry is the announcement of this to the lost sheep of the children of Israel. And he described them in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 as they were to be found among the pagan nations of ancient Europe as Israel according to the flesh. Why is it that what we call Christian identity is such a fantastic thing to most so-called Christians. If Paul of Tarsus, who was chosen by Yahshua Christ to be his minister to the nations, was teaching precisely this very thing in the first century. The nations of pagan Europe were Israel according to the flesh. The Edomites mixed in with a remnant of Judah and Judea. They were not Israel according to the flesh. Only certain of them were, as Paul expresses in Romans chapter 9. They were Israel in name only. They were not the Israel of God. Paul taught this throughout his epistles. And this was his entire worldview, that his ministry was to reconcile the prophesied nations of the lost children of Israel back to Yahweh their God. The so-called Roman Catholic Church, which began to develop three centuries later, three centuries after Paul, may have preserved Paul's epistles, but at the same time it corrupted their interpretation with the universalist and replacement theology that Paul's own words do not support. The Roman Catholic Church was formed 
not out of a love for the truth. Rather, it was formed so that it could co-opt true Christianity and perpetuate its own imperial rule over the nations of Europe. It corrupted and co-opted Christianity because it could not prevail over Christianity, although it had tried to suppress it for 300 years. While many early church leaders may have been sincere Christians, they still complied with and propagated the Roman imperialism which this new church had perpetuated, and they assisted in its developing hegemony over the existing assemblies of Christ. In the meantime, in the desire for world conquest on the part of Rome, the original purpose of the gospel of God had been totally forgotten. This is in spite of the fact that the purpose of the gospel remains clearly outlined in the writings of the apostles, and especially of Paul of Tarsus. We cannot blame the apostles for the systemization of deception which they themselves had foreseen and which they forewarned of. Also quite unlike the later Roman Catholic Church, Paul would never seek to rule over the fledgling Christian assemblies not even those which he himself had founded. Rather, he only exhorted them with Scripture so that their obedience would be to Yahweh their God and not to any man. For whatever reason, when they chose to do something differently from what Paul himself had recommended, he did his best to understand and to be forgiving, allowing the Christian assembly itself to determine its own course of action so long as it was within the bounds of Scripture. This second chapter of 2 Corinthians is exemplary of Paul's refusal to be a pope in the sense that the Romish popes had later claimed its authority. The Romish papacy had later claimed its authority through the abuse of the scriptures. Paul never abrogated the right of a Christian assembly to make its own decisions in ecclesiastical matters, but only exhorted the brethren from scriptures. For these reasons and more, Christians should recognize that the medieval popes were indeed worldly authorities acting under the pretense of religion, but they were never truly authorities in Christ. This chapter, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, 
also exemplifies Paul's own mercy and the comfort which he offered those assemblies upon making such decisions. As Paul himself had said at the end of 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Now I appeal to Yahweh as a witness upon my soul that sparing you, I had not yet come to Corinth. Not because we lord over your faith, but rather we are colleagues of your joy. For you are established in the faith. Now to continue with 2 Corinthians chapter 2. But I have decided this within myself, not to come back to you in grief. For if I grieve you, then who is gladdening me? If not, he who is being grieved by me. In the first presentation of this epistle, we hope to have established the proofs of the facts that Paul had written his first epistle to the Corinthians shortly before he had departed from Ephesus in 56 AD, and that this second epistle was written not long afterwards, in the early months of 57 AD, as Paul was wintering in Decapolis. The second epistle to the Corinthians, as it can be seen in the context of Paul's remarks, must have been written in response to a now lost letter, which had been sent to Paul by the assembly after they had received Paul's first epistle. It is evident from chapter 1 of this epistle, and also from from 1 Corinthians chapter 16, that Paul had changed his travel plans several times, having twice delayed his planned visit to Corinth because he was grieved at some of the things which were going on in the Corinthian assembly. Evidently, they were just as grieved by his admonitions to them in response to those things. In the opening chapters of Paul's earlier epistle, he had criticized the Corinthians for several things that he felt they were doing wrong, such as the sectarianism that had arisen among them, which he addressed in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and their failure to appropriately decide certain matters among themselves, which is evident in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. But there was one thing in particular that was very serious, and that was the apparent arguments they had among themselves over what to do with the fornicator among them, the man who had had his father's wife, which Paul describes in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. In 1 Corinthians chapters 4 and 5, it is apparent that the assembly had requested Paul's immediately immediate presence for the resolution of this matter, something with which he did not comply. For that he said, now concerning my not coming to you, some had been indignant. But I will come to you soon, 
if the prince wishes, and I will know not the speech of those who have inflated themselves, but the power. For not in speech is the kingdom of Yahweh, but in power. What do you wish? Should I come to you with a rod or in love and gentleness in spirit? Then Paul goes on to say, and and the chapter divisions are not always our friends when we think that somehow the subject changes. That's simply not true. Paul goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 5.1, Fornication is generally reported among you, and fornication so bad that such is not even among the heathens, for one to have his father's wife, and you are inflated, and rather you have not mourned in order that he who did this deed would be taken from your midst. There in chapter 5 of the epistle, he tells us the reason why, in chapter 4, he had referred to people within the assembly who were inflated. Some members of the assembly had evidently tried to force the assembly to make a decision that they did not agree with. Throwing their weight around, as we may say in our modern idiom. Paul went on to demand that the fornicator be expelled from the Christian assembly. Evidently, that demand had grieved the entire assembly. And in turn, it grieved Paul that the assembly was troubled so greatly. Although the fornicator is not explicitly mentioned here in this epistle, we know that he is the subject of the discourse from the context which Paul provides us with later in this chapter. Paul speaks of love, kindness, and forgiveness in reference to a certain individual, and the reference must be to the fornicator, who for some reason the assembly had chosen to forgive rather than to expel. Evidently, the fornicator must have been repentant, since even if Paul is not happy with the decision, he explains that he would consent to the decision, not for the benefit of the fornicator, but for the overall good of the assembly. And he says in verse 3 of 2 Corinthians chapter 2, And I have written this same thing, in order that, coming to you, I do not have grief from those whom there is need for me to be delighted with, having confidence in all of you, because my joy is of you all. Verse um, I'm sorry, in verse 3, the Codex Claromontanus has grief upon grief. Paul wants this issue resolved, and he wants it forgotten before he gets to Corinth, which must have been the reason why he chose not to spend the winter there, as he had planned, 
and mentioned at the end of 1 Corinthians, where he indicated that he would winter in Corinth, and instead he later chose to winter in the Coplis and delay going to Corinth. He wants this issue resolved and forgotten before he gets to Corinth. As we shall see, in the spirit of Christian love and brotherhood, Paul is willing to lay aside this issue for the sake of the assembly, because the assembly itself had chosen to forgive this individual, even if Paul himself is not necessarily forgiving, insisting that this issue be forgotten before he gets to Corinth. Paul would rather focus on the things that the assembly was doing well, for which they may celebrate at his arrival rather than grieve or argue or dispute. Verse 4, he says, From much tribulation and anguish of heart, I have written to you through many tears in order that you would not be grieved, rather you would know the love which I so abundantly have for you. Paul loved the Corinthians of the Assembly of Corinth sincerely. He himself had founded that assembly, Acts chapter 18, and had spent 18 months of his ministry among them, and his love for them. It grieved him that he had to say or do anything which had grieved them. This is the pious attitude which Yahweh himself expresses in the scripture. For example, in Jeremiah chapter 31, in verse 20, Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he a pleasant child? For since I spoke against him, I do earnestly remember him still. Therefore, my bowels are troubled for him. I will surely have mercy upon him, saith Yahweh. Christ himself was often troubled by the evident apostasy of the people. For instance, in Matthew chapter 17, where his own disciples failed to heal a man who was sick, and he exclaimed, Oh, faithless and perverse generation or race, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Referring not to his enemies, but to his people. Evidently, he was referring to Israelites, who having long been in such apostasy, their faith had no efficacy in the world. As it says in the Proverbs, in chapter 13, he that spares the rod hates, hates his son, but he that loves him chastens him betimes. We may not spare the rod if we love our son, but we're still grieved wielding the rod. In verse 5, Paul says, Now if anyone causes grief, he does not cause me grief, but in some part, at which I should not be burdensome, you all. He, 
the people in the assembly causing grief had caused the entire assembly grief. Paul expressed grief because the assembly was grieved, but he would not be grieved by those who were causing grief within the assembly. However, neither does he want to be burdensome to all of the assembly due to the instigation of the few. Since the assembly had already been grieved, in one way or another, by the sin of this man, this fornicator. In his next few statements, Paul clarifies his remark by indicating who it is that has caused such grief. But we can only understand these things if we had already studied the contents of 1 Corinthians, of his previous letter to the Corinthians. And Paul says in verse 6 here, Befitting such a one is this penalty, which is by the many. That many within the assembly will grieve by the sin of this one individual. The individual who had committed the sin in the first place would bear that grief upon his own conscience. As Paul explains it, that would be a sufficient penalty for what he had done. The sinner would have to live with the fact that his sin had caused many of his fellow Christians to be so troubled. Paul says, consequently, on the other hand, still more, you are to show kindness and encourage, lest perchance such a one, the sinner, would be consumed in more abundant grief, on which account I encourage you to confirm love in regard to him. We are never told why the assembly chose to forgive this individual rather than expel him as Paul had originally urged. We can only surmise that the individual must have been fully repentant. However, because the assembly chose to forgive him, Paul insisted that their forgiveness be complete and that they restore the individual into the Christian love which the members of the assembly as a whole should have for one another. This teaches us that forgiveness must be complete, and we are not to bear grudges against forgiven brethren. But we shall see in verse 10 that it is the assembly which chose to forgive this individual, and therefore Paul advises these things in regards to the assembly. But he himself still held out the possibility that he may have reservations, as we see in his expressions in verse 10. And he says in verse 9, For this also I have written, in order that I would know of your tried character, if in everything you are obedient, and this could be um, this could be easily misinterpreted. 
Here Paul is not speaking of the assembly's obedience to Paul. Not at all. Quite the contrary, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul demanded that the assembly ostracize this man, and they instead chose to forgive him. Rather, because they forgave him, evidently they must have, been, they must have believed that the man was truly repentant. Therefore, upon forgiving the man whom Paul demanded they oust from the assembly, upon their forgiving that man, Paul expects the assembly to be obedient to Christ. If the man were not repentant, then ostensibly Paul could not be commending the assembly for its own obedience. The gospel of Christ illustrates exactly how Christians must treat one another in these circumstances. Here from Matthew chapter 18. Then coming forth, Petro said to him, Prince, how many times shall my brother do wrong to me that I shall forgive him? As many as seven? Yahshua says to him, I do not say to you as many as seven, but as many as seventy times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of the heavens is compared to a man who is king, who had desired to take an account together with his servants. And upon beginning to take it, one had been brought to him, a debtor of 10,000 talents. And not having it to repay, the master ordered him to be sold, and the wife and the children, with everything whatever he has, to be repaid. Then falling down, the servant made obeisance to him, saying, Have patience with me, and I shall repay you everything. Then being deeply moved, the master of that servant released him and forgave the loan for him. 10,000 talents, that's um, quite a bit of money. And departing, that servant found one of his fellow servants who owed a 100 denarii to him, a small amount of money, and seizing him, strangled him, saying, repay anything you owe. But he did not desire it. Rather, departing, he cast him into prison until he would repay that which is owed. Therefore, seeing the things which happened, his fellow servants grieved exceedingly, and going, they explained to their own master all the things which happened. Then summoning him, his master says to him, Wicked servant, I forgave you for all that debt since you exhorted me the 10,000 talents. Had it not been necessary also for you to have mercy to your fellow servant, even as I had mercy for you? And his master, being angry, handed him over to the torturers until when he should repay all that which is owed. If you sin and you're forgiven, you should forgive your brethren who sin against you. If you hold your brother accountable, 
Christ is warning that he will hold you accountable for your sin. Thusly also shall my heavenly Father do to you if you would not each forgive his brother from your hearts. Since all men are sinners, and since the gospel of Christ promises to forgive the sins of all men who repent of their sins, then men must in turn forgive their fellows likewise, so long as they profess repentance. Yahshua Christ had also cited the word of God found in Hosea chapter 6. For I desired mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. That's what Paul expects these Corinthians to be obedient to. And he says in verse 10, Now to anyone whom you are obliging, likewise I am, and for my part, Whomever I oblige, if anyone I oblige, it is for your sakes, in the presence of Christ, in order that we are not taken advantage of by the adversary or Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Whatever we may think of a particular brother who has committed some sin, If he is accepted by his peers as being repentant, then for the overall good of the assembly, we also should accept him as being repentant. So Paul, if he chooses to oblige anyone, and he's holding out that reservation, he will do so for the sake of the assembly, even if he himself still has questions or suspicions about the character or sincerity of the individual. Paul then explains that if for nothing else, he is choosing this path of love and understanding so that Satan or the adversary, where he is speaking of the enemies of Christ collectively, does not have an opportunity in his designs against the Christian assembly. As the Apostle Peter also says in chapter 5 of his first epistle, be sober, be be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walks about, seeking whom he may devour whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. Now coming to Troas, 2 Corinthians 2.12, now coming to Troas, in regard to the good message of the anointed, An opportunity being opened to me by the prince. I had no rest in my spirit with not finding Titus my brother. Then taking leave of them, I had gone out into Macedonia. 
Here Paul changes the topic, where in a spirit of brotherhood, he did not dwell on divisive matters beyond what needed to be said in order to exhort the assembly to put those things behind them. From Paul's having described these things and reading them in conjunction with Acts chapter 20, I'm sorry, that's okay. We can determine in part when this epistle was written as Paul turns to explaining some of the things which had happened to him since the writing of his last epistle. For the rest of these accounts, we must see diverse places that the epistle to Titus, where Paul asks Titus to join him in Nicopolis, and then in the later part of this epistle, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, at verse 18, Paul says, I have summoned Titus. We see that summons in the epistle to Titus, where he asks Titus to join him in Nicopolis. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, 18, at the end of this epistle, I have summoned Titus and have sent him with the brother, which must mean that he asked Titus to join him in Nicopolis, which we see in the epistle to Titus. And then he sent Titus to Corinth bearing this letter. Realizing that all these pieces fit in pace, in place, that this is the timing of the writing of this epistle. This, in turn, substantiates our interpretation of these last few passages, where we would assert that they can only refer to the trouble within the assembly due to the matter of the fornicator of 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Once we understand the timing of these epistles, we must conclude that they cannot refer to anyone else, that Paul's remarks here must be in response to a letter from the Corinthians, which was precipitated by Paul's demand for them to expel that fornicator from the assembly. The Corinthians wrote to Paul, perhaps, perhaps informing Paul that they chose to accept this man as repentant and to, to keep him in the assembly. So Paul is making sure that since they chose to forgive him, that their forgiveness was complete according to Scripture. In the meantime, there were other people inflating themselves or who had inflated themselves in regards to this incident and caused divisions within the assembly. And Paul had addressed them in the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and the beginning of 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Here, Paul is telling them Twice he had delayed coming to Corinth. He's telling them that's why they 
he had not come to them sooner as he had originally planned, and he's telling them to put this matter aside, to forget it, to forgive this man totally, so that when he does get to Corinth, this issue is forgotten. Because sins forgiven should be forgotten. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, Paul wrote, But I will tarry at Ephesus until Pentecost, for a great door and effectual is opened unto me, and there are many adversaries. And from that statement alone, we may imagine that Paul was speaking of a further opportunity in Ephesus. But instead, he may have had the Troad in mind, where here he clarifies himself by mentioning his coming to the Troad in conjunction with an opportunity which the Spirit of Christ had afforded him. Whatever happened in the Troad, except for his not finding Titus, we do not know. Later in this epistle, Paul only explains what happened after he had left the Troad, where he says in chapter 7 that for when we were come into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest. But we were troubled on every side, without, meaning outside, were fightings, and within, meaning among Paul's group, were fears. So, speaking of some trouble which happened in Macedonia, Paul goes on to explain here, but thanks to Yahweh, who is always leading us among the anointed in triumph, and the essence of the knowledge of him is being made manifest through us in every place. Now, we do not know much about this visit of Paul's to Macedonia, except to say that Luke was once again very modest in his record of Paul's journey, where he says in Acts chapter 20, in verse 1, And after the uproar was ceased, meaning the disturbance in Ephesus with the silversmiths, Paul called unto him the disciples and embraced them and departed for to go into Macedonia. And we only learn from this epistle here and from the epistle to Titus that Paul had first gone to the Troad and did not find Titus before he went to Macedonia. And then Luke says only, and when he had gone over those parts and had given them much exhortation, he came into Greece. So Paul leaves the Troad, goes through Macedonia, And Luke only says that he gave them much exhortation and then in time for winter, which would be around January 1st, traditionally to the Romans, Paul 
arrived in Nicopolis, where he planned on spending the winter. Ostensibly, where Luke says that in Macedonia, Paul had given them much exhortation. Here in 2 Corinthians chapters 2, 7, and 8, we learn a little something of the reasons why they needed such exhortation. Here, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, we learn that the gospel had triumphed and that Paul gives the credit to God. Later in this epistle, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul mentions the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. And he also mentions a great trial of affliction. And he mentions their deep poverty, which also may lend some insight into the challenges that Paul had faced there as he traveled from Ephesus and route to Greece through Macedonia. That the Macedonians, the assemblies of Macedonia, were evidently being persecuted at this time. But we do not have the details except for the scant remarks that Paul makes in chapters 2, 7, and 8 of this epistle to the Corinthians and in Luke, in Acts chapter 20, where it says that Paul had given them much exhortation. And the point of pointing all of this out is that these accounts of Paul's travels, as Luke recorded them, and the things that we could glean from Paul's epistle, are only a very small part of the overall picture. Verse 15, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, seeing that we of the anointed are a sweet fragrance to Yahweh, among these being preserved, and among those being destroyed. That word, osme, sweet fragrance, it, it's um, also rendered as essence in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 in the Christian New Testament essence or fragrance in verse 16. The sweet fragrance of this verse here in, in verse 15 is euodia. Euodia is a sweet fragrance and an osme is an essence or a fragrance depending on the context. These two words appear together in Ephesians Ephesians chapter 5, where Paul used them to refer to Christ, and he said, Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and has given himself for us, as an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. In Philippians 4.18, Paul uses the same words again of the assembly there, evidently in reference to the 
sacrifices which that assembly was making in Christ. The burning of sweet essence was one of the temporal temple rituals, and it dated to the tabernacle in the wilderness, that it was made from the sweet incense, that it was made from fragrant spices and oils, as seen in Exodus chapter 25, where it mentions oil for the light, spices for anointing oil, and for sweet incense. But the essence of burnt sacrifices was also considered incense which is evident in Psalm 66. I will offer unto thee burnt sacrifices of fatlings. With the incense of rams, I will offer bullocks with goats. Later in Scripture, speaking of the apostasy of the children of Israel, we read in Isaiah chapter 65, Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silence, but will recompense even recompense into their bosoms. Your iniquities and the iniquities of your fathers together, saith Yahweh, which had burned incense upon the mountain and blasphemed me upon the hills. Therefore will I measure their former work into their bosom. Thus saith Yahweh, as the new wine is found in a cluster, and one saith, destroy it not. For a blessing is in it, so will I do for my servants' sakes, that I may not destroy them all. And I will bring forth a seed out of Jacob, and out of Judah, an inheritor of my mountains, and mine elect shall inherit it, and my servants shall dwell there. The recompense for iniquity is the sacrifice which the children of Israel would be required to make as a result of their former sins. And therefore, Paul likens the sacrifices of these early Christians to sweet incense. As David had lamented in Psalm 44, Yeah, for thy sake are we killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. The children of Israel turn to sin, and would become victims of that sin. In the Messianic prophecy of Isaiah chapter 53, the prophet used the same language of Christ himself. Paul quoted that same passage of Psalm 44 in reference to the sacrifices that Christians must make in Romans chapter 8. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword. As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Once again, here and in Romans chapter 8, Paul was teaching the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophets. The children of Israel were to suffer for those 2,500 years, for those seven times of punishment for their sins. The sacrifice which Christ made is salvation for Israel, but the children of Israel would still continue 
to suffer. And their sacrifices would be a sweet odor to Yahweh their God. Paul goes on to say, although in those, meaning those who would be destroyed, a fragrance of death into death, yet in these, these would be preserved, a fragrance of life into life, and who for these things is befitting, who is worthy of these things. Paul's reference to those being destroyed must be a reference to those who had opposed the gospel of Christ in Macedonia, which he had alluded to here, but as we have seen, it is a little better understood by comparing Acts chapter 20 and Paul's remarks in chapters 7 and 8 of this epistle. Concerning death and life, Paul humbly asks, and who for these things is befitting? He infers that those who are opposing the gospel of Christ are a fragrance of death into death. In Ezekiel chapter 39, Yahweh speaks to the children of Israel of his enemies who are destroyed in this fashion, referring to them as my sacrifice which I have sacrificed for you. He also infers that those who are upholding the gospel of Christ are a fragrance of life into life. As death in defense of the gospel should be accounted an honor to the Christian who is promised eternal life. According to the scripture, we shall indeed be able to determine who for these things is befitting, as Paul explains further on in chapter 3 of this epistle, that the competence to judge these things comes to us from Yahweh our God. First, however, he makes a digression concerning those who instead seek to please men. He says, For we are not as the many, selling the word of Yahweh in trade, but as from sincerity, rather as from Yahweh, before Yahweh, we speak in respect of the anointed. The King James, rather than having selling the word of Yahweh in trade, has merely corrupting the word of God. That phrase, en Christo, may be interpreted as in respect of the anointed, as we have done it here, one may refer to the um, definition of the preposition, the preposition N in the Liddell and Scott Creek English lexicon for substantiation of that. This is only one of several possible interpretations of the preposition. It may have been rendered more simply as to the anointed, we speak to the anointed, or we speak among the anointed, or as the King James has it, 
we speak in Christ. The Greek word kapeluo, Strong's number 2585, only appears here in the New Testament. Kapeluo means to be a retail dealer, to sell by retail, according to Ludell and Scott. The corresponding noun, kapelus, is a retail, retail dealer, a huckster, a hawker, a peddler. That's the word Paul uses here. It goes far beyond corrupting the word of God. Where the King James has corrupt, we have sell in trade. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul mentioned those enemies of the cross of Christ of whom the end is destruction, whose God is the belly. And in 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul mentions those corrupting the minds of men and defrauding them of the truth, supposing piety to be a means of gain. Religion has always been a business, and lies have always been all the more profitable. Here Paul is describing death and life and asking, and who for these things is befitting? Those who seek to sell the word of God in trade are those who seek to please all men, because not wanting to offend anyone, they have a greater opportunity for profit. That's universalism. As Paul said in Philippians, their God is is their belly. As he opens chapter 3, Paul asks the Corinthians if they need to be introduced to him anew. And he does this in order to remind them that as they came to know him originally, that he was a teacher of Yahweh God according to the scriptures. And his letters and actions have demonstrated that he does not seek to be a pleaser of man, because his God is Christ and not his own belly. And he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, do we begin to introduce ourselves anew, or do we, as some, need letters of introduction to you or from you? You are our letters having been inscribed in our hearts, being known and being read by all men, being made manifest because you are Christ's letter, ministered to by us, having been inscribed not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on fleshly tablets of heart. Admonishing the Corinthians, Paul, in each of these epistles, had to remind them that the very existence of the Assembly of Christ in Corinth established the validity of his own ministry. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he had told them, If to others I am not an apostle, yet at any rate to you I am. Indeed, the assurance of my message is you in the prince. 
Here, he is not seeking to lord over them, but only to persuade them that they came to the gospel of Christ through him, and that should be sufficient evidence to them that he is indeed a sincere teacher of the gospel of Christ. Reminding them of this, he asserts that he should not have to introduce himself to them all over again, that he is still that same teacher in Christ. Paul spoke likewise in chapter 2 of his first epistle to the Thessalonians, where he said, But just as we have been approved by Yahweh to be entrusted with the good message, in this manner we speak, not as if pleasing men, but Yahweh, who is examining our hearts. Reminding them of this, Paul also alluded to both the prophecies and admonishments of Yahweh concerning Israel, showing once again that he was addressing people whom he believed to be of true Israel, which is Israel after the flesh. The inscription of Christ's letter on their fleshly tablets of heart is an allusion to Jeremiah 31, 33, where the word of God says, but this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith Yahweh, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. It is also an allusion to the appeal Moses makes to Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 10, where he admonishes them. To circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart, and to be no more stiff-necked. A similar appeal is found in Jeremiah chapter 4. Paul goes on to say, Now confident such as this, we have throughout the anointed regarding Yahweh, not because we are competent by ourselves to reckon anything, as from of ourselves. But our competency is from Yahweh, who also makes us competent servants of a new covenant, not of letter, but of spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit produces life. Here Paul is explaining how to answer the question which he had asked in chapter 2 concerning death and life, where he asks, and who for these things is befitting? Men alone cannot fairly judge their brethren or their neighbor or those around them from their own judgment according to their own standards. Men have the word of God instead and the gospel of Christ by which to determine these things. For this reason, speaking of the sinners which Paul had described in Romans chapter 1, he says in Romans chapter 2, 
speaking of the hypocritical judgment of men compared to the ultimate judgment of God, on which account you are inexcusable, O man, all who judge, since in that which you judge another, you are condemning yourself. Indeed, you practice the things which are judged. But we know that the judgment of Yahweh is in accordance with truth towards those who practice such things. And consider this, O man, who is judging those who practice such things, then practicing them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of Yahweh, or the wealth of his kindness and the tolerance and patience that you think contemptuously of, ignorant that the benevolence of Yahweh leads you to repentance, but in accordance with your stubborn and unrepentant heart, you store up to yourself anger at the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of Yahweh, who will render to each according to his works. Surely to those with endurance in good works, honor and dignity and incorruptibility, they seek eternal life. But to those of contention, and they who disobey the truth, but are persuaded by injustice, anger and wrath, affliction and strait on every soul of man who labors to accomplish evil. Those who turn to Yahweh God through Christ and repent of their sins and are forgiven and should in turn be forgiving of their brethren who also repent. Those who contend against the gospel and word of God show themselves to be a fragrance of death unto death being competent servants of a new covenant, we must abide by the word of God concerning that covenant. As it says once more in Jeremiah chapter 31, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, speaking of these things in a different context and in greater detail, Paul went on in Romans chapter 2 to say that when the nations which do not have the law by nature practice things of the law, these not having law themselves are a law who exhibit the work of the law written in their hearts. In Jeremiah, Yahweh did not say that he would put some different law into the hearts of the children of Israel. Rather, Yahweh said he would put his law into the hearts of the children of Israel. Therefore, Paul speaks of the nations who had descended from Israel, established in Romans chapter 4, who did not have the written law. Nevertheless, they were practicing the spirit of the law of God by their very nature. That exhibits the fact that they are by nature the children of God. Paul goes on to say in Romans chapter 3, do we then make void the law through faith? 
God forbid. Yeah, we establish the law. The Apostle John explained these things in a different way. In 1 John chapter 2, My children, I write these things to you in order that you do not sin. And if one should sin, we have an advocate with the Father, the righteous Yahshua Christ. And he is a propitiation on behalf of our sins. Yet not for ours only, but for the whole society. And by this we may know that we know him. If we would keep his commandments. He's saying that he knows him and not keeping his commandments. He is a liar and the truth is not in him. But he whom would keep his word. Truly, the, the love of Yahweh is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. So the children of God are those willing to turn to Christ and keep the law of God. By this were the wheat and the tares separated as the Christian faith developed among the nations of lost Israel. By this, Christians today should know who it is who lives as a fragrance of death unto death and who lives as a fragrance of life unto life. Paul asks, and who for these things is befitting? But he goes on in this chapter to explain that we have the gospel of God by which to determine these things. Paul goes on in verse 7, 2 Corinthians 3, 7, to say, and if the service of death in letters, being engraved in stones, had been produced with honor, so that the sons of Israel were not able to gaze into the face of Moses, on account of the effulgence of his face, which is being left unemployed, how not shall the service of the Spirit still more be an honor. Here Paul makes an analogy of the account which we find in Exodus chapter 34. And it says, And Yahweh said unto Moses, Write now these words, For after the tenor of these words I have made a covenant with thee and with Israel, and he was there with Yahweh forty days and forty nights. He did neither eat bread nor drink water. And he wrote upon the tables the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. And it came to pass, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tables of testimony in Moses' hand, when he came down from the mount, that Moses wist not that the skin of his face shone while he talked with him. And when Aaron and all the children of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone. And they were afraid to come nigh him. And Moses called unto them. And Aaron and all the rulers of the congregation returned unto him. And Moses talked with them. And afterward, all the children of Israel came nigh, and he gave them 
in commandment all that Yahweh had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And until Moses had done speaking with them, he put a veil on its face. But when Moses went in before Yahweh to speak with him, he took the veil off until he came out. And he came out and spoke unto the children of Israel that which he was commanded. Perhaps, I'm going to stick my neck out here, perhaps this analogy has several levels. Moses, having accepted the law of God, his face shone with the effulgence of God. We see likewise of Christ in the event known as the transfiguration on the mount, that when he prayed, the fashion of his countenance was altered, and his raiment was white and glistening. Luke 9.29 The children of Israel were not able to look into the face of Moses because of its great effulgence resulting ostensibly from his reception of the law from his receiving the law in the presence of God. Paul makes an analogy of this and relates it to the fact that the children of Israel were never able to receive the law themselves because they had never kept the law, as the scriptures tell us, in so many places that a veil still lays over the Old Testament, as Paul tells us here. However, at the transfiguration on the mount, the apostles were able to look upon the glory of Christ, and it says in Luke 9.29, and as he prayed, the fashion of his countenance was altered, and his raiment was white and glistening. And behold, there talked with him two men, which were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory, and spoke of his decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem, Luke 9, 29 through 31. Yet even then, seeing that, the apostles could look upon it, but they could not stay awake. They could not keep their eyes open, and they fell asleep for an unspecified period of time. It says in verse 32, But Peter and they that were with him were heavy with sleep, and when they were awake, they saw his glory, that effulgence. And the two men that stood with him, the children of Israel could not look upon the glory of God in Moses. The apostles fell asleep in the glory of God in Christ. But when they awoke, they were still able to perceive it. Perhaps, perhaps we may think that that's representative of all Christians and ask when the children of Israel shall finally awaken to perceive the glory of God in Christ. In any event, 
While it is difficult for them to remain alert, the children of Israel can indeed look upon the glory of Yahweh in Christ, as the apostles did. Even though they saw the glory of God in Christ, they still had trouble remaining alert. There's a level of symbolism there that transcends the actual event. As Paul had explained in verse 6, the letter of the law kills, but the spirit produces life. In Habakkuk chapter 1, the prophet announces that, therefore, the law is slacked, and judgment does never go forth. For the wicked do compass about the righteous, therefore, wrong judgment proceeds. This apostasy from the law would result in the captivity of Judah at the hand of the Babylonians, of whom it is said in verse 7 of that chapter, they are terrible and dreadful. Their judgment and their dignity shall proceed of themselves. Because the people of Judah forsook the law of God, and would be taken captive. They would be subjected to the law of tyrants. The same thing had happened to the children of Israel over a century before this time. As they were taken as captives to Assyria. And it says in Isaiah chapter 5, because they have cast away the law of Yahweh of hosts, and despise the word of the Holy One of Israel. Therefore is the anger of Yahweh kindled against his people, and he has stretched forth his hand against them, and has smitten them. So Habakkuk says in chapter 2 of his prophecy that the just shall live by faith, as Paul quotes the prophet concerning that same thing in Romans chapter 1. And basically, for those same reasons. This understanding accords with the prophecy of the new covenant in Jeremiah, which indicates that the children of Israel had forsaken the old covenant of the law in letters, and would therefore be given a new covenant with the law written in their hearts. So Habakkuk explains that because the law has failed, the just would live by faith, meaning a faith in Yahweh their God, which encompasses a keeping of his law. <clears throat> Therefore, in accord with these prophecies and others, Paul writes here of a transition from the letter of the law in Moses to a spirit of the law in Christ. And that spirit of the law in Christ must be that law of Yahweh written into the hearts of the children of Israel as prophesied in Jeremiah 31-33. As it is recorded in John chapter 6, Christ had said to those opposing him, 
It is the spirit that quickeneth. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit. And they are life. Paul says in verse 9 here, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, For if in the spirit of condemnation there is, I'm sorry, for if in the service of condemnation there is honor, much more abundant is the service of righteousness in honor. Paul likens the Old Testament law of propitiation and sacrifices to the service of death in letters and the service of condemnation. You violate a law, somebody has to die. Some laws, when violated, require that the man die who committed them. Upon the violation of other laws, there were lesser penalties, and the man could find a substitute, such as a sheep or a goat or a steer, to die for him. So that, Paul calls, the service of death in letters. Then Paul calls the New Testament law, a propitiation in Christ, the service of life. This is evidently because, as he had explained in Romans chapter 2, in a rhetorical question which he had asked in verse 4 of that chapter, the wealth and, of kindness and the tolerance and patience and benevolence of Yahweh, all of which are, of course, found in Christ. Also, all lead his people to repentance. We repent because we realize the gravity of the things for which we are forgiven. In that same manner, Paul wrote to the Galatians, who were also descendants of the ancient Israelites, wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ. That we might be justified by faith. The just shall live by faith. By a faith that compels them to keep the law. That encourages them to keep the law. But after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. However, as Paul had taught in Romans, that does not mean that we disregard the law. The just living by faith does not mean that we disregard the law. Rather, it means that all men being sinners, we too should have mercy as Christ has mercy on us, and as we are granted mercy, we should strive to keep his law, recognizing that his law is good. Paul says in verse 10, And that which had not been honored was being honored in this respect on account of that more surpassing honor. The law of Moses had not been honored. Rather, the children of Israel had forsaken it as the prophets had testified. 
However, the surpassing honor is in Yahshua Christ. And in respect to the reconciliation of God in Christ, the law of Moses, which had not been honored, would indeed be honored, as Christ had said, if you love me. Keep my commandments. Paul says, if that which is being left unemployed is in a state of honor, much more honor is that which remains. That Greek word, the Greek preposition, preposition dia, is more literally by or through. It's in a state of here. Explained by Liddell and Scott in their definition of the preposition. Paul began this discourse urging the Corinthians to show Christian love for an evidently repentant sinner. His reference to that which is unemployed is a reference to the Old Testament law which the children of Israel had forsaken. It's unemployed, so we're not going to stone the sinner. Christ had come to fulfill that law, which had been left unemployed. The new covenant law is still the law of God, but it is upheld in spirit and not in letter. Christ is the propitiation for the sins of men and not the rituals of the law. From 1 John chapter 4, herein is love. Not that we love God. Of course, the children of Israel always disobeyed God. They despised God. But that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No man has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwells in us. And his love is perfected in us. Hereby know we that we dwell in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. Then John said in chapter 5 of that same epistle, By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we may keep his commandments, and his commandments are not grievous. Paul says in in verse 12, Therefore, having such expectations, we use much openness. And that word openness may have been rendered as free-spokenness. The children of Israel were not able to keep the law of Yahweh, and therefore, by the law, they were not able to establish the kingdom of heaven on earth. Yet Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that just as in Adam all die, then in that manner in Christ shall all be produced alive. 
Later in that same chapter, Paul spoke of the effulgence of the spiritual body in relation to the resurrection. Ostensibly, the expectation which Paul talks about here is that even though the children of Israel had rejected Moses, in Christ they shall all have a share in that effulgence which was seen in Moses, having that expectation. One should speak openly in advocation of the kingdom of Christ. And he goes on to say, And not as Moses placed a veil upon his face, for the sons of Israel not to gaze into the fulfillment of that which is being left unemployed. Yet their minds were hardened, even to this day today. The same veil remains upon the reading of the Old Covenant, which not being uncovered is left unemployed in Christ. It's not uncovered for those who do not accept Christ. Paul goes on to explain that the veil is lifted in the subsequent verses. For their disobedience, Yahweh had brought blindness upon the children of Israel. We read from Isaiah chapter 6, and he said, Go and tell this people, Hear ye indeed, but understand not, and see ye indeed, but perceive not. Make the heart of this people fat, and make their ears heavy, and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and convert and be healed. The children of Israel were being disobedient to Moses. There were things in the law which they could not understand because of their disobedience. There was a veil upon the Old Testament, as Paul explains here. Christ tells the Judeans, and Many of them were Israelites, and many of them were Edomites. Many of them were his natural enemies and could not repent, but many of them were his people. Christ tells the Judeans, Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one that accuses you, even Moses, in whom you trust. For had you believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. But if you believe not his writings, how shall you believe my words? And Paul says in verse 15, Then until this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies upon their hearts. But when perhaps you should turn to the prince, the veil is taken away. Now the prince is the spirit, and where the spirit of the prince is, there is freedom. A reference back to that free spokenness or openness that he previously mentioned. There's a Greek word epistrepse here. I know that the King James Version and all other versions translated in the third person singular. The um, 
verb is classified by linguists as an aorist subjunctive third person singular of the active voice. So people look at the Christogenian New Testament and say, oh, that's wrong. According to the, uh, the Perseus Project, that's one reference, at Tufts University, the link will be with this, these notes when they're posted at Christogenia. The same exact spelling form of this verb may also be classified as an aorist subjunctive second person singular verb of the medium voice. And therefore, understanding that, our translation is seen to be correct. But it may also have been rendered, perhaps, when you have turned yourself to the prince, the veil is taken away. There's a veil over the New Testament, and when a man, an Israelite, of course, turns himself to Christ, the veil over the Old Testament is removed. Once again, in Paul's epistles, while the Christogenian New Testament is the only translation which renders the verb in this manner, it can be certainly established that the translation is correct. While the things in the law of Moses are left unemployed in Christ, but when one is repentant and turns to Christ, he can come to an understanding of those things. Now, a lot of identity Christians would say, well, then, why don't the Judeo-Christians believe the things in Moses? And that's because the Judeo-Christians, they follow men. They do not follow Christ. Judeo-Christians, even though many of them are wonderful people, they have not turned to Christ because they do not accept the things that Christ says. The only truth in Christianity is Christian identity. And Christ said, I come but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. If the Judeo-Christian denies one word of Yahshua Christ, they haven't turned to Christ. So that veil over the Old Testament shall not be lifted in reference to them. And we all, 2 Corinthians 3.18, and we all with uncovered faces are beholding as in a mirror the honor of the prince. We are being transformed into that same image from honor into honor, just as a spirit from the prince. It's our spirit which is transformed not necessarily our physical image. As the children of Israel conform themselves to the law of God, they conform themselves to the image of Christ, spiritually. Paul likens this to having uncovered faces, which one may behold in a mirror. However, that too is an analogy which must not be taken literally. Rather, the children of Israel become clearly 
manifest in the world as they conform themselves to Christ by keeping his law. Paul speaks of that conformance in Romans chapter 8. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God. To them who are called according to his purpose, for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. Paul explains this conforming process in Romans chapter 12. And do not be conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. It's the spirit, the mind, that's conformed, not the face, physically. That ye may prove what is good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Turning to Christ, humbling ourselves before God. The veil is lifted when we read the Old Testament, that we may examine the acceptable and perfect will of God. Doing that, may we begin the process of our transformation so that we become conformed with God. I'll be here tomorrow night. I plan on discussing, I think, um, Johann Tetzel's to show how a man with a doctorate in theology can simply be a whore for the establishment. Today, there are millions of tensiles. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh. And good night.